0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of American Liberty. I'm Kevin Warmhold. Please remember to go to our Facebook page at American Liberty Podcast. Like the page. Keep up to date with everything that we're doing here. Also, subscribe to the show on all of the platforms, Stitcher, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and iTunes. Today, I have another presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, Adam Kokish. Welcome to American Liberty. How are you tonight, sir? Outstanding, Rob. Thank you, brother. So, first off, I would like to know, a lot of my listeners are libertarian listeners. I got conservative listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you should be the libertarian candidate for president.
1: Well, first of all, that's not really an option. It's true that I'm technically running for president, but it's more accurate to say because of my platform that I'm using my candidacy to turn the presidential election into a referendum on whether or not the federal government should be allowed to exist. I am not volunteering to be president. It's an unethical position. It's a power that shouldn't exist. It's the ring of power. It's, and if someone gives you the ring of power, there's only one thing you're supposed to do with it. Throw it in the fire. And so the idea that, uh, you know, just because someone is a libertarian or has an L next to their name, that somehow they're magically special and and they can wear the ring of power and not be corrupted by it, uh, I think that's silly. So my platform is based on resigning on day one and becoming the bankruptcy agent of the United States federal government and taking us through a, a peaceful, orderly process that leaves us with 15 independent states and up to 562 sovereign native nations. So for me, it's why should I be the nominee of the Libertarian Party for president? I, I don't particularly think that I should. I, I think that this platform is one that the Libertarian Party should embrace because there's been something really inauthentic and ungenuine, almost contradictory for the Libertarian Party over its entire history that, that we haven't really resolved yet of saying to people, you should be free, but this guy should be your president. And I, I don't think we have to do that anymore. The answer to this is not uh, not anarchy or uh, revolution, but localization and, and, and a peaceful orderly process that I like to think of as the everybody gets what they want strategy. If you're a liberal, you're a conservative, you live in a liberal state or a conservative state, you don't want to be tied to those crazy people over there through the federal government, do you? You don't want them deciding what policies you're going to be subjected to in your community. They don't have a right to force their ideas on you. And yet that's what we get today under our current system of centralized government. And this is something that I, I've known for a long time, and I, I, I've been just you know, building... Uh, my campaign, my organization, over the last few years. But I've been talking about this since I was first asked, "What would you do if you were president in 2012?" And and after uh, after you know a maniacal laugh for a few minutes, I said, "Okay, well, seriously, what what would I do? I would quit, go home, and get a real job." Uh, but and then you know I was I was really put on the spot by by Jason Burmist, the original info warrior. And he said, no, really, what would you do? And I said, well, I, I guess if the authority, the, the power of the presidency was handed to me, um, and, and it's an, a fundamentally evil or unjust or unethical power that shouldn't exist, uh, I would take it away. I would destroy it. I would throw it in the fire. And so that's really what we're talking about on day one, declaring the federal government bankrupt. And of no authority. So I resigned to become custodian of the federal government. Uh, as for me, I mean, you want, you want my background? I was uh, in the Marines and pollution 2004. I've been an anti war activist after that. I did a peer support group for vets with uh, PTSD called Homefront Battle Buddies. Um, and uh, I've uh, had a, a sort of independent media career since then, I've had a radio show. A TV show, and and then uh, online, mostly focused on my YouTube channel, which has seventy uh, something million views at this point. And uh, now I'm I'm homesteading. I'm I'm building uh, my my dream property out on on ten acres in northern Arizona, building an earthship.
0: That uh, that sounds like utopia, right? That's what you're looking for, the uh the, the libertarian utopia. I have a question, though.
1: Well, what do you you mean? Uh, Which part of that libertarian utopia? Because joining the Marine Corps and going to Iraq certainly was as far away from the libertarian utopia as you can imagine. Yes,
0: and that was something that, you know, myself, I joined the military as well, very young age, and it's always the the poor kids that do it and get stuck doing the bidding of the federal government. And um, my question to you is this. Is the reason why you believe that the the office of the presidency is, is because of how it's changed from its original purpose? I mean, George Washington himself, I believe, didn't even think that we needed a president when he right. was first asked to be president. What? Why would we not have to have a president? Why do you think that it's just a complete waste? Well,
1: there- really, the, the the question is kind of...
0: I guess, who, I, like, I, guess, should, I guess who would we, represent us? Who would represent people? What do you mean represent us? Like, um, well, who would we, would we have? Any elected officials? Would it oh, just localization of government as like the town of Merrick, New York? Uh, has? Well, so a...
1: right. so, so the, the question really comes down to a matter of ethics. And this is what's at the heart of libertarianism. And, you know, the word libertarian just means someone who believes in freedom. But generally speaking, most of us who call ourselves libertarian understand that libertarianism is is really an ethical philosophy rather than a political philosophy. And we just apply it to politics because the ethics are you own yourself. Nobody else can claim ownership over you. And therefore, the non-aggression principle gives us a guideline for what behavior in our relationship is acceptable and what isn't. And so the question is, is it coercive and violent or is it voluntary and by choice and harmonious? Is it it based in respect for other people's freedom? And government, at least as we know it today, is a fundamentally coercive institution because taxation is theft and everything it does is made possible by taxation. And it has a a, a sort of quasi-property rights claim. It claims to have authority over everything in its territory, and it, it didn't you know, buy it or, or, or come to acquire it legitimately through trade. It, it basically stole it. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can talk about the, the natives that were here before the Europeans, uh, but, but even without that, just the unclaimed land for government to say we're going to put up a, fre- a fence around millions of acres and say that it's all just ours and we own it. That's not ethical, we don't need that. So I I think you can represent yourself when you say who who should represent us, um, that's kind of like, but without the president, who's gonna murder babies on the other side of the world in the name of freedom? Uh, Nobody, and and that's kind of the point. So in terms of how we achieve that more ethical society, you know, with, with reasonable, realistic, practical policy, The answer is localization, uh, not central control, not trying to tinker with the current system, but to say, let's respect every community's right to organize how they see fit. The the libertarian message has often been miscommunicated uh, as a political message or as an issue message, or even as socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And None of that's really accurate, uh, even to call it, uh, some, some people describe the, the libertarian message as fundamentally anarchist, and, and and that's not true either, because the message at heart is about the ethics, the, the nature of voluntarism. I think that's the, the, the sort of unifying philosophical term that, that most libertarians, at least in the party who I've met, and, and really most human beings, you know, we all want to be free, we all want our rights respected you know I think everybody you know loves that ideal of, of a voluntary society and the message is too far uh, or for too far long now and, and, and it's been uh, a sort of ideological message even rather than than an ethical message and instead of saying you can't have government do this or government has to do only this or should just do this or can't do it's like None of those things really represent the message of ethics that it's the core of libertarianism. And it's much more accurate to say, you can have as much government as you want as long as it's voluntary. You know, if you want to live in a a gun-free socialist utopia and you get your friends together and people who want that and form that, and you have that, but you don't force it on anybody else, you know, i'm not going to live there but i want you to have the right to do that and i mean i'll go a huge step further here cuz i'm jewish and the ideals of white nationalism are not just scary intellectually but they're kind of scary in a different tangible way for uh, for me but when when people say you know we want an ethno state we want to have you know to, to be surrounded by just other white people uh, we want to get rid of anybody that doesn't look like us. I go, wow. Well, let's redefine what a nation is, and instead of letting you guys fight for control over the, you know, all of America, let's let you have your little space to yourselves and do your thing, and respect that you you have the right to associate with whom you choose and organize how you want, and and that. That's really what I see as the, the, the libertarian utopia is that we get government localized down to the community level, you know, getting rid of the, the federal government is, is really just one step because then you have state government and then states are going to race to localize down to the county level. And then when you get it down to the county level, I almost want to think that as libertarians we're, we're probably going to be done, you know, that that. The Government is going to be uh, as a coercive entity so irrelevant in our lives that you know it, it, we're, we're going to be just you know we're, we're going to be happier moving on and when you get government down to the county level it's kind of an imperfect proxy for community, but at the county level it's going to be very easy for a group to split off and form their own group or for counties to come together possibly and form their own, you know, unions or conglomerates or whatever the case may be. I want people to have that freedom. I want everybody to get exactly what they want out of government. And if if they don't want anything at all, and they just want to be left alone on their own land, kind of like me, then, you know, I, I want that right too.
0: Now, the Libertarian Party in itself, on a national level, is trying to grow, okay? Become yeah. the thir- You know, they are the th- considered the third largest party, but they're in a growing stage. They, they're trying to get on every ballot across every state. So mm-hmm. do you believe that the Libertarian Party in itself, at some point, is going to become just like the other parties, and it should be dissolved? Like, where would you stand on that idea? Because now it's seeking to be just like the other two parties in a way... That has different principles, but you're trying to get people elected to from the president on down. Where do you stand as far as the Libertarian Party in itself? If, if you think that it should be more of a philosophy, more, more of, a, of a, the way that we should all live, but not like a political party.
1: Well, I, I love the Libertarian Party. I'm, I've been a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party since 2004. And uh, when, I, when I got back from Iraq, it was the first time I had $1,000 in my pocket at one time. And uh, you know, I gave it to the Libertarian Party National. I gave it to the Libertarian Party California. I'm a, I'm a lifetime member of, of both. And I think the Libertarian Party is really unique in that we really take it as our mission to essentially put ourselves out of a job. Um, I mean, if you ask any Libertarian, is the goal of the Libertarian Party to elect a Libertarian president? I mean, first of all, I'd say that's like trying to—I don't know what's a, good, what's a good oxymoron. What's a libertarian president? That you know, like a right. uh, you know, uh, you know, a compassionate Nazi. Yeah, I think that's actually a, there. You go. That's a pretty good oxymoronic comparison to, to say that you know, a libertarian president is, is kind of a contradiction in terms. Uh, you know, the president is someone who runs an unethical organization, and a libertarian is someone who believes in ethics. Well, there you go. So, the Libertarian Party's mission, in part, is to put itself out of a job. In the statement of principle specifically says a world set free in our lifetime, and I think that's very reasonable. That that, that in the next few decades we're going to see the paradigm shift towards freedom continue and, and, and get to a critical mass where we're going to see real change. So. Uh, One way or another, this is coming, and for the Libertarian Party to embrace uh, principle and localization, as opposed to playing the old party's game and playing politics, I I think that's how we do this. And and, and most people in the Libertarian Party are not like, you know, worshippers of any kind of, excuse me, any kind of organization, and, and if the organization is no longer relevant, I think we'd all be very, very happy. So if if we're successful, if this is how this is gonna happen, that uh, whether it's me or, or somebody else running on this kind of platform of localization, when we're able to to do this, then the, the National Libertarian Party is no longer going to be the national libertarian party. It's gonna be the historical society of uh, you know a political system that uh, that, that doesn't exist anymore. And so each, just like each state would be sovereign, then, you know, every state, every state libertarian party would now become a national political party.
0: Now, how would a system like that help things like homeless veterans and public housing crisis that we have here in New York, we have a housing crisis with NYSHA A lot of Mm -hmm. people um, are homeless on the streets in New York. California has a huge problem of homelessness. A lot of them are veterans. So in in, in a different way, because government tries to step in and fix it, but they just create a worse problem because they don't know what they're doing. Um, How would your system help people like homeless veterans and people who live in public housing?
1: Well, I'm really glad you asked, Kevin, because that's you know one of the most important issues that that this subject or this this approach of, of ethics really addresses. And we're so stuck in this paradigm of well, if there's a problem, we're going to use government to solve it, you know. And that, that's that's statism. That's the definition of statism. Someone or the the belief that that the government is a legitimate solution to problems. And when you understand that government is is violence, you're saying well. We can't solve this problem peacefully, so or we give up on solving this problem peacefully. We're going to go straight to trying to solve it violently. And there are always unintended consequences of that. W- when were you in the in the Marines, Kevin? 2000 or
0: 2004. I was deployed in 2003 for
1: ORF. Yeah. Okay, so... I think you, you understand what I say. Well, let me, let me tell you a story real quick about a, a homeless veteran I met uh, on Memorial Day just uh, just a little over a week ago in San Diego. We were out filming Man on the Street videos, and as I was wrapping one up, my camera operator and uh, my, my second assistant were going, look, look, look over there, and there was a dude getting arrested by a cop in shorts. Uh, on on the boardwalk on on the beach in San Diego, and so I gr- I grab my camera and I you know collapse the monopod so I can you know move up close and be the guy behind the camera now to get the shot and and I you know I go in and I, I talk to this guy and the cop is yeah you need to get out of the street sir you can't film there I'm like well I know I can film but all right I'll get out of the street and I so I get off and I. I actually sit down next to this guy who's getting arrested. He's in handcuffs. And it turns out he's a Marine Corps veteran who was in Fallujah the same time that I was there, except that he was there a little bit later and stayed for the second battle of Fallujah, which was the, the sweep through the city in November. I was there for the first battle of Fallujah, which was much milder uh, in terms of you know combat intensity. It was the siege of the city in, in April of 2004. And it turns out, But he was being arrested for smoking a cigarette on the sidewalk. And you go, are you freaking kidding me? You want to do this to a Marine Corps veteran on Memorial Day? And as I was filming, I was actually catching this guy over his shoulder while the cop is standing over him in handcuffs, smoking a cigarette on the sidewalk, totally ignored by the cop. And it turns out that this, this Marine had been homeless for a year and was living in his car and had tried to commit suicide the night before. So after failing to commit suicide and spending the night in his car, he gets up to go to the beach on Memorial day. He's walking down the sidewalk to the beach and a cop stops him and busts him for smoking a cigarette on the sidewalk. And he says, Fuck you. Literally, that's what we heard first. Fuck this. And so when the officer tried to give him a citation, he wouldn't sign it. And if you don't sign in that case, they have to, you know, under their
0: Right. Summon, summons Pulitzer. is in lieu of arrest, and that's exactly. how it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And so he refused to sign, and he was put in cuffs and sat down on the sidewalk. And when I got over to him with the camera, he was just yelling at this cop. And he was he was distraught and 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 it, it wasn't just about this cop he was distraught you know he, like he he wasn't upset with me filming, but you know he' just upset at everybody I mean he yelled at me at a couple points I'm like, brother, dude, I was in Fallujah the same damn time that you were there right i'm just trying to I'm just help, trying to help you right now right now I'm videotaping you you're in a bad situation I don't know what that is but I'm trying to help you and make sure this cop doesn't mess with you anymore. They're not going to do it on film, you know, and, and just, I'm, I'm here for you. What, what do you, what do you want to say? And we, we had, i I mean, I'll spare you all the, the, the details of the back and forth because this video is going to be up in the next few weeks for people who want to go see it. And I, I really encourage people to do it. it it's so powerful. It's going to be on, uh, you know, my Facebook and YouTube. Uh, YouTube.com slash Adam Kokesh. Uh, if you just look up Adam versus the man, my main website, thefreedomline.com, you can find it that way. And this is, this is a hard story for me to tell, uh, what, what he told me next to, to, to relay his story. Uh, but he said that during the siege of Fallujah, his squad that, 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 was, put, that was sweeping through the city came across an abandoned baby. It was a live human child, a baby that he said was a little bloody and jaundiced. And the way he described it was basically, you know, we can save this kid if we get him straight to medical care, but otherwise he's going to die. And in that situation, surrounded by all of that death and destruction and carnage that was the second battle of Fallujah. He shot the kid twice and dumped him in a shitter. And that's not something you forget. Not just cause you did it. You don't forget that even hearing that story, but that's not something you get to walk away from. Once that's become a part of your life. And that's what the military does to people. It puts them in those situations. And I had a sort of similar experience in Iraq. Nothing nearly as, as intense or gruesome, but in the sense that I, I was asked to guard detainees. And it was, uh, you're just guarding detainees. You're not torturing them, but you have to keep them awake. And it's like, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll do that. And I, 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 I learned Arabic. To be better at my job. I volunteered to go to Iraq to be there with the civil affairs unit because I thought that was responsible foreign policy. That was cleaning up our mess and trying to do right by the Iraqi people. So I learned Arabic to help people to be more effective in my job as a civil affairs Marine. And that night, I used my Arabic to taunt these men. We were probably just trying to get out of the city that we had surrounded, that we were bombing with d one hundred and thirty Spectre gunships every night, and you know, I that's that's, you know, I, I have to think about that every day, you know, and and I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I I guess I I could say at this point, I have more. PTSD from dealing with law enforcement than I do from, from Fallujah. But it's still one of those things that, that you don't get to walk away from. That's a part of you for the rest of your life. And this veteran in the video ended up being taken away in a police van and, and, and the sergeant showed up from, from the local station and you know, there, there was a bit of a commotion because now there's a guy filming and, and all that. But I just walked up to the the sergeant afterwards, and I said, you know, Sergeant, this guy's obviously a, a troubled veteran, and I know there's there are veterans court and there are other provisions. I, I I hope that you'll give this Marine every consideration possible under the law based on his circumstances. And and the sergeant just said, yeah, okay, I'll I'll do what I can. And you know, the issue of of homelessness for veterans. Is not so much an issue of of economics as it is an issue of mental health
0: mental health yes
1: and that's that's really true about most people who are homeless like even just today this morning we went out to a VA hospital in Detroit Uh, myself and and my friend Brian Ellison who's a great activist from uh, the Detroit area here in Michigan and then we went out and we, we I, I actually just Googled, you know, where do homeless people hang out in Detroit, and we found a block where there were a lot of homeless people just hanging out in the middle of the day, and and I went and I've interviewed them and, and I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed homeless people in in a lot of cities, uh, you know, especially Skid Row in Los Angeles. I got some great videos on my YouTube channel there, and and you can see that. There are two primary factors in, in, in homelessness, um, and it's mental health and it's the criminal injustice system that, that we live with here in the United States, where if you're a felon, uh, and I'm a felon, um, you know, for, for my civil disobedience with a shotgun in D.C., you're, you're not uh, able to get most jobs. That are out there. It's it's really difficult. They make it you know really hard to enter society, re-enter you know society as anything less than a second class citizen. And this is especially true about Black Americans, veterans, and Black Americans, but Black Americans especially because of the. Uh, and, and, and I'm not here to, to you know overblow the, the reality of racism, but what's undeniable in the statistics is how. Black Americans are disadvantaged by the legal system. You know, we can joke about driving while black, but when that results in more drug arrests and ruined lives, and vehicles stolen by the government, and time and, and energy and, and money stolen by the government, you know, that stuff you can't get back. So your question was, uh, you know, uh, about veterans homelessness. I I think.
0: I just want to touch on something, if you don't mind, with the homeless sure. veterans thing. Yeah. I, I've been through the VA, okay? The problem yeah. is I, I've waited up to nine months for an appointment. Yeah. You have veterans. You have veterans that are 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 and basically on the end, like the, the man you just described in your story. Yeah. He tried to commit suicide the day before then. Yeah. How many times do you think he probably reached out to a VA hospital or... or had an appointment. I mean, people who have those type of situations and then get told over the phone, sorry, we're booked for nine months. Good luck until then. That yeah. is part of, you know, the government system is not working. The government VA does not work because it's bloated, oh, with, bloated wow. with BS.
1: Uh, yeah, one, so this morning, I talked to a veteran who had been put on a bunch of medication and was having a bad response to the medication that was making him suicidal. You know, we're losing 22 veterans a day. How many, we don't know, are because of this particular strain of bullshit that we get from the VA? When I went there, I told them I was having trouble sleeping when I got out of the Marine Corps. I talked to a shrink for five minutes. I walked out of there with a bag full of five different prescription pills. Three of them had suicide listed as a side effect. I was lucky enough at the time to to have the presence of mind to say, Screw this. Uh, I, the, the only one I used was Xanax as needed, and it was like getting stoned but with a headache. And it was like, wait, I can use cannabis and just not have a headache. I think I'll do that. And, 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 I, and that might have saved my life. Whereas this guy, he was told to wait three months. I'm suicidal. I'm having suicidal thoughts. Can you help me? Sure. Give me three months.
0: Yeah and and, and, take, and take these pills that big farmers is supplying the federal government
1: yeah, yeah, exactly so the, the, uh, I, you've probably heard the statistics of you know we have you know so many you know hundreds or uh, thousands of, of homeless people in America, and we have i don't know like two or three times as many empty houses, you know this is not a problem of of economics, even in this sense, there are plenty of economic problems. Don't get me wrong; that 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 factor into this. But the fact that we don't, as a as a society, figure out a way for veterans' homelessness and veterans' suicide not to be an issue is an absolute disgrace. And so, I
0: think, I think a big problem is also delivering the message to the veterans. I mean, there, there needs to be more nonprofit help. But there are some nonprofit organizations sure. that are trying to do what they can with the money that they raise. Now, right. if you, if you remove government from the equation, how do we expand the nonprofit? Is it changing the way the tax codes are so that there's less money that's being taken away, and that more money could actually trickle down to the veterans themselves to get them help, to get them back on their feet, to get them into homes so they're not sleeping on the street? How does that work? Well, first
1: of all, I'm not talking about getting rid of government. So that's not no,
0: no, 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 I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying that the size of the VA and how it's run is mismatched. It's too, there's no accountability. Right. Yeah.
1: So there's two things very specifically in terms of VA policy and and dissolving the federal government that are going to be just incredible for veterans. And the first one is give the VA to the veterans, I don't want to abolish the VA. It's part of the government that provides legitimate services that most Americans support. You know, the most anti militarist, anti war people still say, yeah, if you come home and, you know, you got messed up in war, people should take care of you and help you in that. And and most people want that. They don't want politicians in charge of this. And we know that taxation is theft, so we can't. Perpetuate the unethical system that got us here, in order to take care of veterans. So, when we liquidate the assets of the federal government that don't get spun off as independent public trusts or as as uh, as or, or uh, you know handed over to the states, uh, like with the VA, we can we can fund the VA with an endowment and spin it off as an independent institution that is owned and operated by veterans for veterans. And so the way that, that, that I propose we do this is that we use a blockchain. We put it on a blockchain, have a blockchain-based voting system, the same kind of system that, that every cryptocurrency is based on. We take that. We, there are a lot of other applications of this, but it's a way that you can have a verified, encrypted, decentralized system that would allow every single veteran in America to have one ownership voting share and be able to decide what VA policy is and to elect representatives to a a board of directors and and let it be run like a nonprofit. So it's not going to solve all the problems of the of the VA, but it, it solves the most important fundamental problem with the VA, which is that right now it's accountable to politicians who are accountable to their corporate sponsors, including big pharma and the military industrial complex. We do this, we flip it, flip the script, and now the VA is directly responsible to veterans run by and for veterans. So the second thing is is even simpler, and and this is something that's, that's really important to me because, like I said, cannabis might have saved my life when I got back from Iraq, but right now we have the studies that show even more powerful medicines out there are being kept illegal because they're natural or they're not patentable, and so no well, pharmaceutical
0: company. They're can- kept illegal so the because the federal government can't make that money off it. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So, you know, we have uh, MDMA therapy has been shown to be extremely effective for PTSD and mushroom psilocybin therapy. And and it's really exciting to see fellow veteran uh, Army vet Kevin Matthews uh, led that effort in Denver to get mushrooms decriminalized there. Huge progress. So exciting. It's like, you know, a, a hole being blown in the drug war. I mean, I really think we are coming to the end of the war on drugs, which is really a war on drug users, which means it's the war on you and your community on behalf of government special interests. So if, if we say, you know, that, that uh, dissolving the federal government, I, I can't promise you will completely end every little element of the war on drugs in America, because some states are gonna wanna keep going with that. And and, and in a sense, um, I kind of respect that, not really at the state level, but at a a voluntary private community level. You know, if you and your neighbors come together and say we wanna create a drug-free zone in our neighborhood or we want these drugs to not be welcome, you know, you can set that policy on a voluntary private property basis as long as you respect other people's ability to do what they do on theirs. So right now, I have 10 acres in, in the mountains in Arizona, and I'm finally getting to the point where um, I, I'm ready to start developing it into a veteran's retreat. And I can't tell you everything that you guess would happen there, but uh, you can kind of figure it out for yourself if you want. But giving veterans the chance to go through talk therapy, uh, to, to do yoga, to, to, to get exercise, you know, to be outside be able to just check out from the world, you know, they program up. I mean, you know that Kevin, right? They call it brainwashing. That's, that's almost way too nice of a term for it. Cause your brain doesn't feel really clean afterwards. Does it?
0: Yeah. I, I still remember all the, uh, the, the, the four uh, safety tips at the range. It's like in my head forever. Can't get it out. <laughs> yeah. Programming. Yeah. They
1: program you and then they release you back into civilized society as someone who's been programmed to kill.
0: Yeah, now, now I have a question for you cuz Joe Rogan's actually brought this up.
1: It's the there there has to be a way and this is this is I I just want to make sure I'm answering your question thoroughly. That, that that we we welcome veterans home and and provide the tools for deprogramming.
0: The the, the mention of the mushrooms um, shrooms being legalized in Denver. Joe Rogan has talked about this and they have done studies on the benefits of uh, shrooms with PTSD. Can you explain a little bit about that and more in depth about what, what, what the positive effects are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert or someone who's done uh, extensive psilocybin therapy. I've just seen a few documentaries. I've talked to some friends who have been helped by this. And, and I've done uh, psilocybin myself about a dozen times. And I'm now looking to give myself the experience of of a more therapeutic trip uh, of of being able to just uh, lie down with a blanket on and headphones and and an eye cover and be able to really go inside. Uh, A a big part of what psychedelics in general do is, is open you up to a sense of love and acceptance. The way that I've always described it is that you can sit and meditate and understand, psychologically, that everything is right in the universe. That everything is right in the universe. That's just the way it is. Nothing is out of place. Every every atom, every molecule is, is exactly where it should be, and going at the right velocity. And that's the universe we live in. And it's a beautiful, amazing place. And if you resist that, it seems like every kind of internal human suffering is from a belief that that something is wrong with me or with you or with the world or my life or whatever, or my past as is is often the case with with post-traumatic stress. And there's something about the visceral feeling of everything is right in the universe that you cannot help but carry with you out of one of those experiences. So th- that to me, and, and I've had that experience with LSD and with DMT as well, and, and, and ayahuasca, which is a form of DMT. And from everything I've heard from veterans who have experimented with these medicines in, in a more methodological way or in a more controlled environment or a more deliberate way, what they've been able to do is really deprogram themselves. Um, let, let, me, let me put it to you another way, and this is, it, is, it is kind of hard to describe, and I'm, I, like I said, I'm not gonna pretend to describe it in medical terms, but when, when you, you can actually look at a map of the brain. They've done fMRIs, the functional magnetic resonating images, where they do a brain scan of someone who's on psilocybin, and you can see that the neural connections that are made in that state are are totally different from from the conscious state. And it's these connections that that put your mind in a different mode that allow you to not only process your traumas, but to get more in touch with your true self. So on my last ayahuasca experience, I had an an epiphany that that came to me in in a very clear way. I actually did. Uh, a graphic of this and if someone wants to go look at my my silly artistic imp- impression uh, of this idea you can go to my facebook page and it was uh one of my my wallpaper pics uh, about a year ago and it's that we have these sort of archetypes of what we can be as humans and the lowest is the warrior and a warrior is someone who puts their life on the line for what they believe in, protects the innocent and stands up for justice. And that's, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful archetype. To say that it's at the bottom is not to in any way demean its importance or lessen its righteousness. But if you are a warrior, if it is if you are called upon to fight in some way, that conflict means that there is some discord in in humanity and so the next archetype that's above warrior is the healer. And if, if there is healing, there's, there's no need for a warrior. If someone is coming at you to fight you, it's because there's something in them that is hurt, that is broken. This is why turn the other cheek is such a powerful expression, is that we know that human beings are in some ways, in some most important fundamental ways, essentially all the same. We are all independent consciousnesses and physical bodies that want to be loved and, and touched and, and to have food and air and shelter and water and, and just all of these basic things of, of the human condition. And it's only when those are lacking and that there's pain or suffering or insecurity or something that comes from a lack of one of those things, that being a warrior is necessary. And if you can be a healer instead of being a warrior, then you don't have to be a warrior. But if you're a healer, if you're healing something, it means that something has been damaged, someone has been hurt. And of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I think the next archetype above that is the builder. And if you can build a world where everyone's needs are met, then you don't really have a need for a healer. And I don't mean to say that there's some silly utopia where nobody ever gets hurt and you don't have doctors. But it, it, I mean, well, if you look at the United States today, most of what our medical industry takes care of is preventable disease—you know, disease through uh, through caused by lifestyle or exposure or violence—you know, not just natural things. So it, it, if we were able to build that create that then the the role of the healer and the warrior would be unnecessary and so when i look at these three archetypes they they really point and, and and the ascension from one to another they point the way to the fourth archetype which is the ultimate state of a human being our highest form our truest potential our most authentic selves is the lover to be a lover, to, to exude love for yourself, for the world, for humanity, to stay Zen and live in that love. And that's something that, again, like that sense of everything being right in the universe. Yeah. Maybe you can think your way to that. Maybe you can meditate your way to that. I heard a Zen Buddhist once interviewed who had done, mushrooms for the first time and said, I've been meditating for decades, attempting to achieve the state that I experienced on mushrooms. So it's an incredible accelerant of that process of awakening and realization that our true form, our true selves, all of us as human beings, is to be a lover first. And as we move through the world and reality, we descend down that hierarchy of archetypes to become a builder or a healer or a warrior, but ultimately at our core, we are always lovers. And to live in that awareness, to live true to that is uh, really a resolution of, of, of most mental health issues. Certainly, uh, PTSD, which is, you know, your, your uh, outlook on the world affected by past trauma, to say no! I'm a lover, and everything is right in the universe. I mean, I can tell you that, and it sounds almost silly even hearing those words now coming out of my mouth. But because I have experienced that uh, in an altered state of consciousness, the idea of of living love and embodying that authentic self for me has been an incredible way of just getting past PTSD making it irrelevant in my life and 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 the the fact that veterans come home from war because government sent them there and we know that these medicines are available and that we don't have the freedom to use them should make every american's blood boil so uh ending the war on drugs, or at least localizing the war on and ending the federal war on drugs. There may be state wars on drugs, but then you can, you can opt out in, in your own community, on your own property, the way that I'm doing in a practical sense already at my place in Arizona, and, and really embrace that freedom. I think that's, you, you know you, again, end the drug war, give the VA to the veterans, uh, the issue of veteran suicide and, and, and veterans' homelessness, Go away pretty quickly. Now, Kevin, I'm sorry. Like, as I th- I took a long time to answer your question. I went off and told listen, that story.
0: Listen, I love it. I, I love. I'm listening to you, and, and it's definitely not what I ex- expected to hear. But uh, hey, listen, I, I got I got it. I got it. So I, uh,
1: I just was was there a second component of your question? You said something. You said veterans homelessness. Well, well, something else, and I want to make sure I wasn't trying to. You, you didn't think I was trying to avoid.
0: No, no, no. Oh, um, I guess it ties into it, the public ho- housing crisis. But... Yes, yes, that was it. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. For yes. my... Because so, the, I... In New York City, I just want to explain. New York City, NYCHA, the, mm. it's run by the state. These buildings are in absolute the worst conditions. Like There are better conditions in uh, downtown Baghdad during the war <laughs> than somebody's buildings. I mean, it's <laughs> but unbelievable.
1: But yes, good comparison, good comparison. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrible. And these people depend on the state government to yeah. provide for them because they're in a dire situation. So how does getting rid of uh, or localizing the government, how can that help the public housing crisis we have now? Isn't sure.
1: That's, that's a great question. And there's there there are so many ways it helps. I almost don't know where to start. But just to stay on on message if i may you know talking about localization as i pointed out before the the housing crisis is not so much a problem of our inability to build or create the the resources it's it's an allocation issue it it it's a, a almost a a political issue in in that sense so when you have the corruption of the federal government the disasters of of unintended consequences of of federal policies. Um, I mean, we talk about, you know, all all the different federal laws and agencies that have a hand in screwing this up. Uh if you localize control, whatever corruption there may be through government is going to be much smaller, like like astronomically smaller, like a scale smaller than than what you have at the federal level. And so the misallocation of resources is, is not gonna be as severe. And what that means is that resources are, are much more able to go to human need. So that's looking at just the immediate of you know effective localization. But there are, there are other issues with the housing crisis. And because I'm building my own home, this is something that, I, that I'm particularly attuned to in terms of all the ways that government makes construction more expensive and more difficult and, and, and takes away the options for legitimate off-grid sustainable housing and instead shepherds people or, you know, kind of forces people to live in, I don't want to say forces, it's not like an individual force level, but, you know, economically tilts the playing field to get people to live in cities and apartment buildings and housing projects, or even just, you know, stick frame suburban houses, as opposed to what would be much more natural and in line with the environment. And and this is why I'm building an Earthship, and that's just one example. That's a brand name. If you want to look up earthship.com, please do. Mike Reynolds, the creator of this technology package that creates an incredible off-grid, self-sustaining home, Uh, is a great dude. I I went and took his academy in Paus, New Mexico. And, And so I'm applying that for myself, for my lifestyle, but I can tell that I'm at a huge disadvantage. For example, there's a VA home loan program. There's a VA construction program, construction loan program. You can get a loan from the VA to to buy a house and and there are better conditions for veterans for that than than for the general public. And we we have a slight advantage there. But if you want to build without a permit because you're building a house that the government codes don't apply to, uh, if, if you want to build off grid, you have to clear all of these other hurdles that government puts in our way. And, and to be fair, it, it would be unrealistic of me to say that dissolving the federal government is going to completely solve that issue because in, in my case, for example, I'm dealing more with the county zoning issues than, than anything that's federal. But particularly with the county, it's because of state regulations, state laws that they feel they have to impose certain zoning things. Of course, it becomes a petty shakedown racket in, in so many other ways. But you know, if you were to get it down to the county level, the county government wouldn't be able to say, Well, we can't let you do this because state law says this. And and there are so many cases where we would be doing things better in our communities if we didn't have the bureaucrats determining the policy. Well, we have to do it this way because of state law. Or we have to do it that way because of federal law. And so if, if you got government down to the county level, I mean, right away, you're going to see just most of the bullshit just goes away. And whatever bullshit is left, uh, like I said, it's not the, the panacea for government, but whatever bullshit is left at the local level is, is gonna be a lot more manageable and, and can be can be made uncorrupt and voluntary and brought in line with, with human needs uh, much more effectively than by trying to maintain a centralized, coercive system.
0: And, and localization is a big part of why I became a libertarian. Um, hmm. I believe that we could govern ourselves on a smaller scale locally better than somebody who's all the way in DC. Somebody yeah. who's sitting down in DC has no idea what I need you know, and the same thing on a state level in some instances. Yeah, where if it was just brought down to your community size, everybody in the community, like in your town, knows who you are. Most for the most part, you see the same people in the same stores, day in day out. Somebody from the neighborhood, like uh, I was getting a haircut the other day, and my barber was like, "I gotta go make a visit." You know, whatever the guy's name was is sick. I go to his house now to cut his hair because he can't make it out. That's an example of people within the community. He's, he's not charging them. He just knows that he's sick and he needs help, so he will go there when he's done and go cut his hair at no cost. It's the, the local community is better together than having somebody dictate what you do from the other side of the country. He does not know what you need. Right. So I, I like the idea where the smaller communities could deal with the housing crisis within that community rather than the state get this big budget, appoint a bunch of people that donated during their campaign and put them in charge, and then they dictate where the money goes, and it never makes it down to the people that need it. I mean, people in some of these buildings in the city, have, they didn't have any heat during the winter, for, for the entire winter. They're just waiting and calling and getting terrible customer service because people got a city job, they don't care, you know? So bringing it down to the local level, I think, is a great idea. We're running out of time, so I just want to hit a couple more uh, issues with you if I can. This current situation with the tariffs and free trade, okay? Yeah. the free market principle, and cryptocurrency and how that ties into it. First, let's talk about the tariffs. Tariffs are a terrible idea because it, the government is dictating how much they're going to add on to what you are trying to sell to somebody across the world. You're trying to make profit, it's and, it's- and they're taking... Taxation, the form right. of that. Yep, and that's something that uh, the revolution was fought of over was you know representation tax. without taxation, you know, or taxation without representation, and then now we're just taxing everything. So, kind of got lost uh, in its purpose. But tariffs are a terrible idea. How do we, like, what is the answer? And is cryptocurrency, if, if that expands, how does government's going to want a piece of that? So how do we keep that out of the hands of the government and in, well, in the exchange.
1: Questions, Kevin, how many hours do we have left for this
0: interview? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, okay,
1: I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best here, because uh, when you say, well, you know, what do we do about tariffs and, and, and our crypto, is cryptocurrency a solution to that? Yes and no. I, I think the most important thing about cryptocurrency is that it means we get to walk away from the U.S. dollar peacefully. You know the libertarian answer to most things really should be let the market decide i'm not a central planner i'm not going to try to impose my vision on you so when you say like how soon should we stop using the us dollar you know people want to say end the fed kill it tomorrow and it's like no that's silly. that's that, that's dangerous and unrealistic to say we're just going to end the fed no i mean i mean i'm all for it don't get me wrong but but this is one of those things where you do have to allow for an orderly transition. And the fact that we have Bitcoin now as, as a viable alternative that's growing in adoption and, and growing in utility and all that, that's it's it's very, very exciting. So I'm I'm all for that. And I think that's huge in terms of ending government control over the economy through the mon- monetary system entirely. There, you know, if you could say there's there's one thing to do. Uh, you know, as, as someone who cares about freedom in the United States and adjusting your lifestyle, use cryptocurrency so you don't pay as much in taxes, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God's. Well, the dollar is Caesar's money. It is evil and and, and it is debt based and it is backed up by violence, whereas Bitcoin, I would say it's God's money. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly it's it's peaceful money. It's money that people are choosing to use by cooperation. So, when it comes to tariffs, as long as you have to go through government-controlled ports to import goods from China, or airports, or you know whatever else it is that they're using to physically move the goods from chi- from the territory of the Chinese government to the territory of the U.S. federal government, you're not going to be able to avoid that. that. Just like you know, the question, how do you, how, what do we do about sales tax? Well, if you have a government that says you can't run a business if you don't pay the sales tax, then that, that's bad. You've got to get rid of that government policy. So uh, you know, getting rid of the federal government obviously gets rid of the federal ability to do that. Some states might do that. But ultimately, it really is about asserting our right to free trade, and to say that, that, that to really make sure uh, that, that people aren't afraid of this idea that taxation is theft, and 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 most people agree. Like I go out even today, I was doing it when I we were doing interviews with with homeless people. You know, this dude just jumped up like out of the blue, didn't even know what we were talking about, and said. You know, you started complaining and was like, Yeah, and because taxation is theft. I'm like, Are you a libertarian? Have you heard of this from so like, no man, it's just obvious. Taxation is theft. Of course it's like everybody knows. You know, you know at a gut level that government is violent and it's immoral and the taxation is theft. And yet we have this attachment to the status quo and this fear of change. And I, I, I guess I didn't expect to be answering uh uh, a question about tariffs and Bitcoin with psychology, but you know, and it, really that is what it comes down to is getting over that fear of change so that we can admit to ourselves what we all know to be true, which is taxation stuff.
0: Is cryptocurrency entering the market beneficial or worse? Because now it's being exchanged in the stock market, okay? The federal government could see everything that's going on with cryptocurrency, and
1: well, not everything.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, well, they're going to to try. I'm sure they. You know, how do you how do you keep that from being touched by the by the Fed and having them starting to control some of it?
1: So so your question isn't really not is it a good thing or a bad thing, but just is there a potential negative consequence of Bitcoin sort of maturing enough to enter mainstream markets that are subject to greater regulation, right? Correct. Okay. So there are definitely some potential negative side effects here. But I think they're small and temporary compared to the overall benefits of Bitcoin adoption that is accelerating because of the mainstream acceptance. And I'm th- th- there are people in the crypto community who are referred to as Bitcoin maximalists, which is that they believe Bitcoin is the one and only, and it's going to take us to the end of, of needing money, and it's going to help us get rid of the US dollar, and that's it, yada, yada, yada. And there are some other great cryptocurrencies out there. I'm, I'm a particular fan of, of Dash and, and Smart Cash, not just because they sponsor me, but uh, I, they sponsor me because I approached them, because I said, you know, like what you guys are doing is is important, and and I want to promote it. Uh, so I I don't know. I don't pretend to be the you know cryptocurrency expert or to have you know the, the crystal ball to see where this is going in the future. But what I do know is that the more people are comfortable with cryptocurrency and the more they demand it, government could. Totally ruin Bitcoin. They could ruin Dash. They could ruin every, every cryptocurrency, Smart Cash, everything that we have around us today. They, they could they could destroy all of them. They could take them over with buying them out and 51% attacks. You know where they control the 51% of the hash rate power on on the blockchain and and, and that sort of thing. But if the is out there and people know that it's possible, we can just start over we can create it again and if we like so let, let just say for example if if there was a deliberate attempt today by government to kill bitcoin they would have to either either physically go and shut down servers all over the world where this network exists or they would have to invest in the network with their own servers and equipment to get to that point of having 51% of the hash rate and they would they would have to really blow up and, and increase the the value and demand for Bitcoin in order to do that. And then hypothetically they could kill it or fork it out or 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 make it so unstable that it's useless.
0: Adam, but even the, Adam, yes. I think you're gonna agree with me to say that once it becomes something that could be a danger to the current status quo and the value of the dollar, that, that is a that is a serious possibility. Right.
1: But we can recreate it. Uh, from scratch if we have to. So I, I'm friends with Roger Ver, Bitcoin Jesus, Bitcoin.com. And the last time I spoke with him, what, what he shared with me is, is, I think, a much more realistic fear um, about how government or the powers that be uh, might approach cryptocurrency. Because cryptocurrency is an invention. It's, it's, it's something that you can say, once it's been invented, it cannot be uninvented. And so... The, the real fear is that Bitcoin and, and the cryptocurrency market as a whole is so small right now that the powers that be could really manipulate it. And they could drive the price up and down and up and down, just, just that it's not useful as a monetary instrument, as a practical currency and while they're doing that they institute fedcoin and say well now the us dollar is going to be replaced by fedcoin and then we get the one and then they're going to put you know tens of millions of dollars into developing the perfect app for it and the system for it and they're going to introduce it in a way where they're able to keep it more stable. And because it's replacing the dollar, it's in every store. And that's what we can collect taxes in now. And all of these other advantages that the establishment would have if they created their own cryptocurrency. And even that, as, as bad as that sounds, would still be progress away from the dollar system. And it would make it easier in the long run for people to say, oh, FedCoin, well, we're f- comfortable with FedCoin. Let's move over to Bitcoin, or Dash, or Smart Cash or you know, whatever it is that, that is the, the, the new cryptocurrency at that point, or the dominant, ind- I should say, independent cryptocurrency at that point, that uh, a r- really non-governmental, non-violent cryptocurrency, uh, it, it would be easier to shift over that. So. One of the things that I talk about in my book, Freedom, is something I call the asymptote, which is the, the point of uh, in, you know, in infinite acceleration of the human experience through technology, because technology increases exponentially. You know Moore's law, right? You know Computing power doubles roughly every 18 months. And I mean, even if, if that's not true about computer chips at some point, the general trend of technology is exponential, not linear, and we are living at this point in human history that is just so exciting. I mean, I, 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 I when I talk about this, I, I don't, I can't contain myself. So to me, this is the most exciting thing about being alive right now is to be, to be able to witness this incredible acceleration of, of the human experience. I, I shouldn't say witness, to experience this acceleration. Of, of humanity into this you know technology driven era that we're, we're already in the beginning of it's so exciting because not only is is, is human life going to you know explode in, in ways that that we can't imagine i mean if you compare where we are today to sort of the dawn of humanity and caveman times that difference is, is about to happen again on a much shorter timeline, can you imagine what kind of human being in the future would look down on us the way that we look down on cavemen? Right. That's where we're going. And and just to give you a sense of the timing, the exponential nature of this, you can see this. You can see it. And here I'm going to put the numbers on it. That's gonna, if you listen up, because these numbers right here. Stay with me. It's a bit of a mathematical exercise. This is going to blow your mind. If I'm you ready. look at the last <laughs> 20 years, and I would say 20 years is about as long as we've had the mature internet sort of as we know it today, right? Yeah, obviously the internet's a little bit older than 20 years. But in terms of the internet being a, a widespread phenomenon that has fundamentally shifted every aspect of our lives, there's, you can look at this change over the last 20 years and be like, wow, there was pre-internet and now there's internet. And that amount of change is equivalent to the amount of change that humanity experienced over the 200 years prior to this. Think about that for a second. Think about from the year 2000 to the year 1800. Major leaps, medicine, transportation, all of that. And you go, yeah, but the same amount of change that's happened in the last 20 years. Now, go back another 2,000 years from, I guess, you know, 1800 to 200 BC. And that's the same scale of change. And you can go back and say 20,000 years. And really, during that time, not that much changed. You go 200,000 years, well, you know, from the dawn of the existence of the species to, you know, okay, now to, to agricultural societies, that's a, that's a pretty big shift. And when you understand this compressive nature of the acceleration in terms of innovations are now compressed into a shorter and shorter timeline, this means looking forward, if you followed my math, we're going to go forward in time now. The change that we've experienced over the last 20 years, we are going to experience in the next Two years. Then we're going to experience the same amount of change in about two months. And then it's going to be two weeks, and then two days, and then maybe two hours at some point. And at that point, the acceleration itself will be the defining feature of the human experience. And that's what I call the asymptote.
0: You know, that could also sound scary to a lot of people. I mean, artificial intelligence, the the, the technology behind that, uh, you know, Elon Musk has talked about it, and the government, how are they going to uh, affect the change? Are they going to be open to it? Are they going to stop it? Are they going to come down on cryptocurrency when it becomes too popular? You know, those are some of the questions.
1: government is violence and violence is always based in fear and people are always going to be afraid of new things and changes and new technologies. And it's, it's a legitimate fear. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be there. It's baked into our consciousnesses, but obviously we shouldn't live in fear. We should be brave. We should be courageous and Zen about moving forward into this uh, new existence. Because if you're, and, and we're all we're all pretty much brave enough to stay where we are. None of us are so afraid of technology. Now, there are some exceptions here and sort of anarcho-primitivist types, but uh, they're, they're not doing it out of fear even. But it, 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 if you're afraid of, of where we are today of technology, just think about how people pre-internet were afraid of the internet, you know, or people pre-electricity were afraid of electricity or before cars, the motorized vehicles. No, we need to go back to horses and buggies. You know, like no, right. there's, If you really want to, if you want to indulge that fear, then take it to its logical conclusion and go live in a cave. <laughs> Otherwise, buckle up. It's going to be a hell of a ride.
0: Well, Adam, I uh, I want to thank you for coming on. This uh, honestly, I think like I I need to do like a four hour episode with you and go through everything because you seem you know you got a lot of knowledge and experience that I think is very interesting and I I would like to learn a little bit more and I think a lot of people how how do we learn more about you and what you're doing
1: yeah yeah Kevin, well, hey, man, I, I'm I'm enjoying this, and 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 I like talking to the veterans, especially. So, if if you want to, uh, oh, and by the way, Kevin, I should point out that um, I, I'm in the process of uh, refounding the Libertarian Veterans Caucus within the L.P. and it's just a Facebook page right now that we're we're taking out of dormancy. And I would really encourage you to join that because it, its primary purpose is to support veterans' voices uh, who are challenging militarism. And, and, I, and I think that's so important, you know, especially if, if you're a combat veteran, to be able to come home and, and use that, play that damn card, you know, use that appeal to authority for the people who need it and say, nah, it's bullshit. So I, I hope you'll join us, the, the the Libertarian Veterans Caucus. You can find it on Facebook. I think right now it's a it's a group um, that you have to request to join, and and that's that's uh, you know really important for, for this phase of human evolution of, of getting past militarism itself. So oh,
0: well, you know what I tell you what, since you brought it up, I'm going to keep you on for ten more minutes. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about that. All right. So the military.
1: Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Let me answer your, your question first there, or or, yeah. or just at first there about about all these other things that you want to talk about like it's it's only uh it's it's june right what 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 day is it today june 3rd um the the election's not till november and and kevin is you know uh, you're welcome to come hang out at freedom farm and uh you know i say that to every veteran i meet who who at least isn't gonna you know, isn't isn't so uh, out of their mind as to be a threat. You know, anybody who can safely be there is welcome there. Um, so I hope you'll come out. But because the election is not till November, you know, a big part of my job as a candidate is is just doing interviews and talking to people and getting out and doing that. And we have a lot of time. So Kevin, as long as you're doing this production, um, I, you know, I'd be happy to come on again. We can make this a series. You know, maybe I'll come on, you know, once a month, and, and we can say. You know, as long as we get to refer back to this first interview, people don't think I'm only about one other thing. But if you want to do some special episodes and, and, and get into some of these topics, I'd I'd love to do that. And and before you try to wrap anything up here, you know, I, I just want to tell tell everybody who's still listening to this, you know, uh, over over an hour into the call that it it's really important. That that we support independent media, not just as listeners, because you know when you watch the mainstream media, you're getting uh, a huge load of ads thrown at you, and and the American Liberty podcast is not one of those productions, obviously, that has huge corporate sponsorship, because because uh, obviously Kevin's message and, and the people Kevin uh, is is having on aren't going to be spouting that mainstream pro-government corporatist ideology of statism. We're all challenging that. And so it's really important for people who who want to see people get away from the mainstream media to support independent productions like this. So please, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Not just this podcast, but share everything you can from from American Liberty, uh, from Kevin here. And in that sense, you know, put your, your money where your mouth is or your ears are, maybe. But, uh, yeah, please help support independent media. It is, it is so huge to us uh, as a species, humanity, realizing the potential of the Internet. So, Kevin, thanks for being a part of that, making this possible and for, for what you do as an independent media producer. I, I've been there. I know. I yeah. know the challenges
0: the freedom i'm able to decide what i want to put on who i want to put on what i want to talk about and nobody could tell me otherwise and i don't yep. have to be uh, afraid of repercussions you know yep. from any uh studio or broadcast you know we are our own person we have our own choices you can, you're free to think the way you want and do what you want as long as you don't hurt anybody and that's mm-hmm. why this is a great great opportunity and uh i appreciate that thanks um and the same goes for anything that you do. I, you know, I highly support, you know, uh, I saw you were marching, actually. What was it last week or on uh, Memorial Day? You did a march. Tell me a little bit. No
1: no, 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 no. We, we were just making man on the street videos in, okay. in San Diego on Memorial Day.
0: Yeah. Um, the uh, military industrial complex, real quick. Mm-hmm. Okay. We both served in the military. The politicians make all these decisions on where to send the troops, who to invade, You know, we have Iraq. Iraq was completely unnecessary, but we're there. We both were there. Um, The products that are created by private industry for profit, the weapons, the ships, the the F-35, the F-22s, they have a product. Just like any other business, they want to show the world that their product works. To buy my product. We are selling these planes to Saudi Arabia, Uh, Poland you know it's a business so in order to keep that business thriving you need war the military industrial complex is a a legitimate thing it should only be used in self-defense that's part of the libertarian platform right Mm how do we how do we educate people to to have a better understanding about the military industrial complex and its its real purpose that, uh, that these companies want to make money, and they will make sure that the politicians that are put in place will allow them to do so.
1: Oh, man. You sure you don't want to save that for the next hour? Should we leave that <laughs> teaser for the next episode? I'll, I'll just say this then for now, is, is that uh, one of the veterans who I spoke to at the VA today uh, had been exposed to yellow cake radiation poisoning and was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement about that and allowed that story to be swept under the rug, even that now it's irrelevant. And when he mentioned it once publicly, they actually took away his his VA benefit. They said, oh, you have health issues because you were exposed to radiation. Well, if you don't tell anybody we'll take care of you but if you tell people you're screwed and you're probably going to die and it takes a lot of courage for someone like that to tell me that even and and on camera and 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 he was careful about how we spoke about it on camera but he had the courage to tell his story enough where he says I am not going to let my kids join the military. And I think the more veterans stand together as brothers and sisters to tell our stories, the sooner the rest of the world can learn
0: the lessons from them. Well, it's something that needs to be addressed, and we're definitely going to have to touch that next time. I want to thank you for coming on. Please tell everybody how they could follow you, where they could follow you, your YouTube productions, how do everybody keep up with what you're doing?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that that opportunity, Kevin, and it's been a blast. But the social media platforms, you know, where we release content are really reliable, we platforms, centered, on so many different things. So the best way is to go to my main website, which is thefreedomline.com, and, and join our email list. Hold on, From Adam, there, Adam just, just repeat president.
0: that. Then, just just repeat that you got cut up a little yeah. bit. Oh, know.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, the website is thefreedomline.com. three words, thefreedomline.com. And from there, you can find, okay, for president, you can find our blog, you can find me on Twitter, which I'm actually enjoying these days or Instagram, which I'm somewhat active on Facebook, of course. And we're going to be releasing videos on uh, YouTube and Facebook and DTube, and you can find all of that. But most importantly, you can get my book, which is a hundred pages. I started writing it when I was in jail as the answer to every libertarian manifesto written before this uh, to be the ultimate conversion tool. And for people who really want to complete their understanding of this ethical philosophy as quickly as possible, it's the best way. That's why we've got a quarter million copies in print, over three million downloads. And, you know, every, everywhere I go, people, see, I, the, the Freedom logo is more recognizable than my face uh it's funny i'll go out in a, in a in a city or, or if i go to the airport and i wear the freedom t-shirt um people oh yeah the the book or whatever before oh you're the author <laughs> you know um so it's it's really cool that it's been this this huge underground hit and that, that you know i can go out and 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 see how popular it is now so if you you go to the website you can get the book for free it's free Every single digital format possible, including audiobook. There's a dozen translations up there into other languages. And if you want to buy a paper copy, we sell them as cheap as we can get away with at Amazon. Um, and we're actually working on getting away from that too. But uh, it's all there. So the one website for everything is thefreedomline.com.
0: Awesome, Adam. Thank you so much. All right. And everybody, uh... Make sure you go to our Facebook page at American Liberty Podcast. Like the page. Go to my Twitter handle at Kev Warmhold. That's K-E-V-W-A-R-M-H-O-L-D. And subscribe to the show on Stitcher, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and iTunes. We're on all of those platforms. I want to thank you again, Adam. It's been awesome talking to you and I do want to get you back on and we'll keep going. Thank you, brother. Peace and love
1: to you all.